been going through the book of Revelation. And as we read the very first verse of the book, it says, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's a revelation that's supposed to illustrate him, show who he is. And last week we saw just how great he was, that even though we were in our sin, he saved us by his blood, has put us into a kingdom as priests uh, to represent God. And Jesus is described as being the Alpha and the Omega, that he is the Almighty, he is God. There is no other God apart from Jesus. And this book is given to let us know who Jesus is and how he looks not only in the past and in the present, but also the future. And so that is the book of Revelation, even as this slide that we have for the book represents uh, the, the Alpha and the Omega, and we're looking at everything through Jesus. We want to see what the world looks like today through Jesus' eyes. We want to see what the future looks like through Jesus' eyes. We want to make sure that our eyes are always on Jesus. We're looking through the Alpha and the Omega so that we see him and everything in the world going on through Jesus. And so if you would turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter 1, we'll continue on with where we are in the book. We're going to start this morning at verse 9. Revelation chapter 1, verse 9 says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on the account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. And so if, if you recall, if you've been here, if you just need a, uh, you haven't been here and you just need updating, John was a disciple of Jesus. He had gotten older and he was one, the one disciple that was not martyred. They tried to, they tried boiling him in oil, but when he wasn't even affected by that, while he was preaching the gospel, the emperor was so mad, he put him into exile on the island of Patmos. And so while he's on Patmos, he begins to write this book and he says there, I, John, am writing to you. I'm a, a fellow partner in the tribulation. I'm a partner in, in what's been going on that's difficult and the endurance that's needed. And he says why he's on Patmos. I'm not here on a vacation. I'm not here because somebody just didn't like the way I've dressed. I'm here on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. John was on exile on Patmos because he was doing what I'm doing here freely today. I'm preaching the gospel. John was sent into exile for that. And I know for some of us, in America especially, we say, well, I'm glad that's not happening still today. But let me tell you something. It is happening today. It's just not happening here in our county today. Recently, there were uh, some ministers from our own conference who went overseas to a country in Eastern Europe. I can't say the country they went to or the, the names of the people they were involved with because they've asked to have those withheld so it doesn't get people in trouble over where they were. But the Christians and the believers that they got to know in that country and in that place were so faithful with the word of God and the testimony of Jesus that they lived their life just overflowing with Jesus like John did. And here, in our century, in our day and age, in this year, they would go over and meet these Christians, and there was Christians who were being persecuted for the same gospel that John had also preached. It's happening today. They're so persecuted that a pastor who had preached, just like I'm preaching here today, spent four years in jail because they told him, do not preach, and he preached. One man who was sent in, he was a world-renowned judo, wrestler, a powerful man. And when they put him into prison, 
They didn't want him to disrupt and become a, 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 somebody who would cause them problems in prison. So they went and they cut his thigh muscle all the way down to the bone so that he couldn't fight against them. All that on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. And so it would be easy to say to John, I'm, I'm glad that doesn't still happen. It does still happen. And it may happen here one day. Would you be willing? Would you be willing to have the testimony of God? and of Jesus Christ and the Word of God on your lips if it meant doing what other Christians are already experiencing today. That's what happened with John. He's telling the the churches that he's writing to, hey, we're in this together. You're undergoing persecution. I'm here because of Jesus. But I'm here to give you a message that's being sent from Jesus to encourage you, to encourage you. And he talks about uh, what's going on in verse 10. He says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. So John suddenly hears this you know, loud trumpet voice behind him. I can't do a trumpet very well. My wife sometimes get her on uh, uh, by her. She can do a, a, a mouth trumpet really well, can't you? She won't do it here for the crowd. But I just imagine a loud trumpet voice, because that's what John said. John goes around, whatever he sees, he writes. And so he hears this loud trumpet voice say, whatever you see, I want you to write it. I want you to give a testimony of what you see in these visions and send it to these seven churches. Those seven churches were located what is in modern day Turkey. And so he writes to these seven churches. Well, like we would do when he hears the loud trumpet voice, It says that John turns around to see who was talking. It says in verse 12, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And just to give you a a preview, later on in the passage, you'll find that those seven golden lampstands represent those seven churches from Ephesus, Pergamum, etc. Lampstands represent churches. It's symbolic. So there's one standing in the midst of the golden lampstands, standing in the midst of the seven churches. And in verse 13, in the midst of the lamp stands one like a son of man, which throughout scripture is a description of Jesus. Jesus even calls himself the son of man. So we have a picture of Jesus standing in the middle of the lampstand, standing in the middle of the churches. And it says this. Now, think of your image of Jesus, what Jesus looks like. You've heard about him in Sunday school. Maybe you've seen pictures on your in your Bible, whatever. And this is what it says. Jesus, like a son of man, standing in the midst of the lampstand, it says, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. And his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. And from his mouth, came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. And so what you have here is a picture of Jesus that we don't often have a visualization of. When we think of Jesus, we think of him as a Galilean who was wearing some sandals and he had kind of the, the general Palestinian look to him and a beard that's brown, maybe blue eyes. 
But that's not the description that's given here. It's something much greater. He's described as one who looks like a priest. He's described as one who's just in such ultimate power that he has flames in his eyes and a sword coming out of his mouth and he's holding in his hand stars. And he's, he's just a powerful picture of Jesus. White hair. There's one day when Elijah, he was about four or five years old, and he woke up one day and he said, hey, I had a dream and I saw Jesus. And me being curious about that, I said, well, that's cool. What did Jesus look like? And Elijah, never having studied the book of Revelation, never having heard it, he said Jesus had white hair and he had fire in his eyes. Jesus had given Elijah a dream that's exactly the picture that John received in the vision when he turned around and he looked at the trumpet voice. It was Jesus standing in the midst of a lampstand, not as one who was walking on the roads of Jerusalem, but one who was all-powerful God standing in front of him, just magnificent and glorious. That was Jesus. He is God, and he's standing in front of him. So here's John. John, as we know throughout the Gospels, was one who Jesus came to his fishing boat and said, you know what? No longer are you going to do your small business. I want you to come follow me and be fishers of men. John left his small business and all the money and his family business behind and followed Jesus. He was just a kid probably at that point, maybe in his teens or 20s. And he grew up and it says that Jesus and him became good friends. He was the one described in the book of John as the beloved one. He was the beloved and they were good friends. And so certainly they had lots of time together. They spent time in the garden. They were at the, the Last Supper. They walked the roads. And yet when Jesus comes and presents himself here in Revelation, he is so magnificent and so glorious in his look that what we find next is, is powerful. It says in verse 17, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. John, who's been friends with Jesus, ate dinners with Jesus, ate breakfast with Jesus, took care of Jesus' mom after Jesus had gone back to heaven. He, when he sees Jesus in all of his glory, falls down like he's dead. So powerful. Have you ever been in the midst of something so powerful you think you're about to die? I remember Katie and I, we were camping out in the wilderness of Idaho one time, we're, we're those kind of campers where we kind of back the car up to the campsite and take the tent out and just kind of pop it there on the side. That's how we camp. And so we were out there camping, kind of inexperienced campers. And, and while we're in the middle of the wilderness of Idaho, we look out. It was, a, it was a warm night, but we look out, and this storm is coming. Now, I like watching storms, and I like lightning and thunder. To me, they're all kind of exciting. And, and so anytime lightning and thunder would come by our house, I was always looking out the window and exciting. So there we were at the door and the windows of our tent saying, here comes a storm. This is kind of exciting. And the storm got closer and closer. What I realized, I had not experienced a storm this powerful in a house this flimsy. And as it marched closer to us with more and more power presenting itself as something that was stronger than we were, we suddenly looked at each other and said, we should not be in this tent. We need to be in that car that's about 10 feet away from us. And so we unzipped our tent and we were running to our little car, our little hatchback. And in the midst of running that 10 feet, boom! I mean, there was a bolt of lightning not far from us that, I mean if my intestines had been filled with food, would have been emptied of that food in just a moment. 
I mean, I was freaked out. I thought I was going to die because there was something that was more powerful than myself revealing itself in that moment, and I was fearful. There was nothing I could do to stand against its power except hide in the hand of God. That was a lightning bolt. Now, John is standing in front of the one who created the lightning bolt that I saw in Idaho. And it says that on seeing the one who had the trumpet voice and has all that power and is dressed in the white robe and has the head of white hair and has eyes of fire and feet of burnished bronze, which means they're mighty strong. There he stands before John and John cannot bear up under the revelation of the power and holiness of Jesus. That is the proper way to see God. We are much too quick to say, oh yeah, God, he's fluffy and he's powerful and he's cozy. But God throughout the scripture, when he comes the closest to human beings in revealing his glory and his power, do you know what human beings always do in the scripture when he just kind of pulls back the curtains and shows his power? What do human beings do? Say, yes, I can stand in your presence. No. The ones we know who have even the strongest faith say, I am about to die. Remember the children of Israel where they're out by the mountain and God is showing his glory in the midst of lightning and thunder and earthquakes and flames in the, and a cloud in the midst of the, uh, the, the mountain. They said to Moses, you go talk with God because if we even hear his voice anymore, we will die. You have Daniel who similarly sees visions of the Lord about things in the future. And when he sees the vision, so holy are they and magnificent. And what he sees is so awesome that after he sees them, it says that he is dreadfully sick and pale green. Isaiah, when he has the vision of the throne room, he's there and he says, Woe to me, I'm a man of unclean lips. When God reveals himself the most in all of his glory, our proper place as people is to recognize that we don't deserve and we're not worthy, nor are we powerful enough to be in his presence the way we are. We are like those ones who are running to a car of safety and suddenly stunned by the powerful bolt saying, no, you don't. You can't just run yourself to safety. In my holiness, because of your sin, you will die. That is the proper way of seeing God's holiness, that it is so powerful, so magnificent, that we in our sinful human state just deserve to die. We should fall down before him and say, we are worthless. That is a proper, humble place. So John sees Jesus, and instead of saying, hey, buddy, it's good to see you, has Jesus revealed to him, and he falls down as though dead. And if we finish the story there, none of us would really be surprised. But Jesus does something so absolutely incredible. It says in the middle of 17, but, and I love when the scriptures say but, but, he, Jesus, laid his right hand on me saying, fear not, I'm the first and the last. 
So John is there dead. He's not worthy. He shouldn't be in Jesus' presence because he's a sinner. Jesus says, fear not. And as he does it, he reaches out. And specifically, he reaches out with his right hand, which throughout Scripture, when anybody is brought into fellowship and friendship and relationship with somebody, they stick out their right hand and they receive them with the right hand of fellowship. In fact, on December 13th, when we bring people into membership for our church, our bylaws say when they come in, we extend to them the right hand of fellowship. We do that still to show that we have a relationship with somebody else. And Jesus, instead of letting John lay dead, extends that right hand of fellowship, lays it on John and says what? Fear not. Even though it is proper to have fear before God because of who he is and who we are, Jesus says, fear not, extends a right hand of fellowship and receives John, and he tells him, I'm the first and the last. I have a say over these things, and I say, you fear not, you come be with me. And then he goes on to explain why. He says, fear not, I'm the first and the last. Verse 18 says, and the living one, I died, and behold, I'm alive forevermore, and I have the keys to death and Hades. So Jesus says, I have control of these things. You know what? I've always been alive. I died. He died on that cross. But guess what? I'm alive forevermore. Death could not hold me down. And so I have charge over who lives and who dies. You, John, I want you to live and I want you to live with me. Fear not. Fear not. Has he said that to you? If you run away from him when Jesus reveals himself to you, you are running away towards death. You are running away towards hell. You are running away towards relationship with God. And you might think you're about to jump into your hatchback and be safe. But guess what? Jesus says he has the keys. And Jesus says he has the keys to death and Hades. Now, some of your translations, particularly the King James Version, will say the keys to death and hell. That is not the proper translation. There is a word that is specific to hell. The translation is to death and Hades. And in fact, the King James improved itself with the new King James, and it says to death and Hades. So I just want to distinguish that because later on in the book of Revelation, Jesus takes death and Hades and throws them into hell. So I want to make that distinction. Hades was this place where that when people died before Jesus had ascended, that everybody was taken to this place of waiting. It was a nether world. It was the place of the dead. In the Old Testament, it's called Sheol. Both the righteous and the unrighteous would go there. And so they would go there and they'd wait. The unrighteous would go to a place that was a little bit more terrifying. It wasn't an uncomfortable place to be. The righteous would go to a place that the Jews called Abram's bosom. It was a safe place where all of them together were awaiting where Jesus would bring judgment to everybody. On Jesus' ascension... We know that Paul says, my spirit's going to be with the Lord. And there's still this waiting place of judgment for people. And so it's that waiting place. It's that place of until Jesus come. That's Hades. It's that place, that container where, where the dead are being held. And so Jesus says, you know what? Not only do I have the keys to death, I have the keys to the waiting place until your judgment. I own those things. When somebody has the key, they own those things. You all afterwards, you'll go out and you'll get into cars. And guess what? If you don't have the key to the car you get in, you don't own it. You can't drive it. You can't control it. 
unless you're really good at hotwiring. But guess what? You can't hotwire death. You can't out-control Jesus. He owns death. He owns Hades. And in fact, in this world, even though the world might say, you know what, we can outdo death. We can figure out a way to live forever. We can't. And I'm going to prove it this morning. We have an expert in death who's with us. We have our very own uh, mortician, right? Mr. Alan Roberts, our in-house mortician. Do you have the key to death, my friend? Have you ever been able to have somebody in a box at your place after a death call and say, you know what, I'd really like you to live. I'm unlocking you back to life. Have you ever done that? No. Have you ever seen anybody in your business be able to bring somebody back to life? No. We have an expert on death in our presence. And him, viewing every death that he's ever done and every funeral and everybody who's come across his path and every textbook that he's ever read and every case study that he's ever seen has always said that when somebody dies, there is no one in this world that has a key to that casket or who can take back the, the cover of that grave and say, I want you to live. There's nobody who has the control over death. There's nobody who has the ownership of Hades except for Jesus himself. And so when Jesus comes to John, and when he comes to you and I and says, hey, I died and now I'm forevermore. And guess what? Oh, I own death. And I own Hades. And there's no pastor. There's no mortician. There's no guru. There's no voodoo doctor. There's no, there's no policeman. There's no nothing that can save you from death. It's good to hear Jesus says, but I can. I can save you from death. Death is a serious, serious thing. Young girl is out in the backyard digging a hole. And her neighbor, this grandpa, was looking out and saw that she was digging this hole. And so he, he got curious and he says, well, I'm going to go check on her, see what she's doing. So he goes over and he says, hon, hon, what are you doing? She says, well, I'm digging a hole because my goldfish died. And he stood back and he looked at the hole and it was a big hole. And he said, well, don't you think that hole's a little big for your goldfish? And she said, real sad, she said, but my goldfish is in your cat. <laughs> this little girl knew that there was no way to bring that goldfish back. We humans, the way we usually take care of death is to kill something else. The goldfish and the cat were going in. You know why? Because there was nothing she could do to bring it out. There was nothing she could do to revive life into that. And the same is exactly true for every human being. There is nothing that can bring you life except for Jesus. In front of Jesus, either in this life, you will recognize his holiness and fall down and, and, and be like you're dead and say, I should, I should die. I am so sorry. And he lay his hand on you and say, I forgive you. And he brings you into his presence and you get to live with Jesus now and forevermore. Or there will be that day after you have been tossed into the grave and because Jesus owns the grave, he will resurrect the righteous and the unrighteous, the righteous to live with him forever, saved, but the unrighteous will stand there on that day. And Jesus, you will recognize to be all-powerful, all-holy. And if you are not saved, he has the power to take you out of that waiting place of Hades, out of death, and to cast you into hell. That is a place you don't want to go. 
The scripture says that's outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. You don't want to go there. And so isn't it great that John says, hey, I want to send you a revelation of Jesus. I want you to know who he is. And as John says, hey, this is who I am, he stands before John and says, John, don't lie down there dead. Be saved. Be in relationship with me. Come be with me. And oh, send this message also to the churches. I want them to know I love them too. I want everybody to know that I've paid for their sin. I don't want them to live in fear. I recognize that he's sending this to churches who are living in persecution. He's sending this to churches who are undergoing tribulations and need endurance. And his encouragement to them wasn't, oh, it's going to get better. His encouragement was, you know what, in the midst of this, fear not. I've defeated death. I'm playing for the long game. I'm playing for eternity. What are you playing for? Who among us is playing for this world? And who among us is playing for eternity? There is only one way to play for eternity, and that is in this life to submit to Jesus on your knees and to say, Lord Jesus, I repent of my sin. Whatever you want in my life, it's yours. You are the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God. And so to you I submit. In your life, don't live for the temporary. I know it's easy. We have a complete world driven by temporary. We are coming into a season of the calendar, even the church calendar, that's often driven by temporary. This Christmas gift, this iPad, this jewelry, this new car, this new necklace, this bunt cake, whatever you want, it's going to make you feel good. That's all you want. That's all you need. Put it on your list. Make sure your husband knows that's what you want. We live for the temporary. What are you living for? What are you living for? John in that moment said, you know what? There's no jewelry. There's no iPad. There's nothing that's going to save me. It was just for Jesus in that moment to say, fear not, buddy. You come and live with me, and then you go and write and tell these churches what I have to say. And so that's Jesus. Recognize him to be all-powerful, and in all of his power, in all of his love and his goodness, to want to extend that right hand of fellowship to you and say, fear not, on your feet, come and be with me. And then go live in the eternal. I guarantee you, it'll be far more rewarding than anything in this temporary life can give you. You go and talk to those believers who are in Eastern Europe, and you ask them whether they would change things and live for the temporary Maybe a a muscle that's not cut. Or not having their houses and their cars bugged. Not having their privacy disturbed. You know what? They'd say it's all worth it because we're living for our king. The ministers that went over and they talked to them, you know what they kept saying over and over about the church over in this country? They said this, you have never, ever seen a people more filled with joy and a people who are so loving and hospitable to people than these people who are being persecuted. 
That's living for the eternal. It's you being changed so much that you're willing to go and share Jesus and share him with other people. You're affecting other people's life for their eternity. Are you living for the temporary? Are you living for the eternal? This morning, if you recognize, you know, I've been living temporary. I've been living for this, 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 and this. Then it's, it's probably true that you've taken that thing and you're worshiping that thing rather than the Jesus that we saw in the passage today. And so take that idol and just lay it down and say, Lord, I recognize I've been worshiping this more than I've been worshiping you. My mind has been about this. All I can think about is this. Just take that thing and say, Jesus, I give it to you. It may not be a thing. It may be a situation. It may be a feeling. Sometimes we love feelings more than we love Jesus. Take that idol and put it down and say, Lord, please forgive me. And this morning, you come and you recognize, you know what? I've never, ever prayed to Jesus. I've never, ever asked him for forgiveness. Then don't wait another day. Because this book says things are going to come to an end pretty quick. It'll ramp up. And then Jesus will return. You don't know when that day will come. It will be like a thief in the night. If tonight is that night, then you don't want to put this off for another day. Come to the Lord. He loves you so much. He loves you so much that He died in your place. So that after His resurrection, He can come and say to you, You know what? You can stand in the presence of Holy God because I've paid for your sin. You're no longer a sinner. You are a saint if you believe and have your sins forgiven. So today, believe and have your sins forgiven. Call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. I'm going to pray. If the Lord would call you to repent of your sin or to be saved, you're welcome to pray where you're at. I also want to let you know that you're welcome to come and pray in the front here. We'll also sing after that. You're welcome to pray at either of those places. But this I want you to know. That if you have called upon the name of the Lord, that's not something that's done in isolation. Remember, Paul, even though he's on Patmos, not in isolation. He's sending a letter to churches. And so if you do something today, I want you to come and talk to me about it. Not because I want to tabulate your name onto it, but because I want to pray for you. I want to encourage you. I want to help you in your faith. I want, to, I want to help introduce you to what it means to be a part of a church. Part of this eternal thing is that we're in fellowship eternally together. And so if, if you pray to the Lord today, please come and talk to me. I, w- I would love to talk to you. So if you would, let's bow our heads and pray. Father, we're so thankful that you, through Jesus, have made it possible for us not to stand and be arrogant, not to stand and just keep doing what we're doing, but to stand and and be present in your presence. That you have said forever, we get to live with you if we've had our sins forgiven. And so we're thankful that to accomplish that, you sent your son Jesus to die. He died in my place. And so, Father, we're thankful that you sent Jesus as a sacrifice for our sins. And we're thankful that through the power of the Holy Spirit, he has defeated death. And he rose from the grave. And he's alive forevermore so that he can come back to us and say, hey, come live with me. I'm inviting you to come live with me. And so today, Father, if we've heard that voice of Jesus saying, come live with me, come be forgiven, come repent, we pray that we'd respond in our hearts and our spirits. 
ask that you would give us strength to leave behind the things of the world, all the things that we love more than Jesus. And we ask that we would repent and submit everything to you. And so, Lord, as you ask us to continue to live in this world also, we pray that you would make us an eternal people, but people that are living, using the things that you've given in this life for the purposes of your kingdom. Lord, show us how to use our cars. Show us how to use our computers and our jobs and coaching and nursing and school and friendships. Show us how to use these things for your kingdom, Lord. We pray that as we obey you, that you would fill us up with joy and where there is tribulation, that you would bring encouragement. I pray for those who are hurting today, Lord, as, as they have been persecuted for their faith. Lord, that you would come and give them just a, a special portion of your peace and your comfort. Thank you for the miracle that you do in our lives, Lord. We pray that we would continue to press more into Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.